Who do you think who do you think is the most dominant leftist on Twitter? In turn like just who do you think is the best poster? The like most powerful? Just the like, best. T- just who's the best? It, what does like, that mean ter- to you? You're asking too of, many like, questions. What I, does it mean to you? I mean Drill, probably. Drill? Is drill does drill count as a leftist poster? Yes. Yes? Drill is okay. absolutely a leftist. 100%. I've seen like some of his tweets that I'm like that 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 like could go in the leftist direction. I'm like, yeah, this is dope. Uh, but I I don't like follow. I'm not on Twitter at all. He's so. not explicitly leftist. If we're talking about explicit leftist, most powerful probably uh, Virgil, or, Virgil, or um, Garbage Ape. Virgil can't be the most powerful poster though because he was like literally a, like a corpse for months. I mean, wait, he was is like he a ghost. Back? I haven't been listening at all. Yeah, he he's yet? he's been. I don't know if he's back on Twitter, obviously, but he's appeared in a few episodes. They did a new Beltway Garage, which I like. Nice. If you're talking about like people who aren't, um, I'd love to answer that question. I'd I love still... to do like a um uh, a late a layman's guide to left Twitter. <laughs> My fucking layman's guide to left Twitter is that. stay the fuck away. Really, literally, it it does almost no good for my my general mood. Like it doesn't, it does not help me. Yeah, at all. Um, it it helps me stay angry all the time. Um, actually, you know what? the The most powerful leftist might be um, Jabuki. He is powerful. That's true. Um, you know, you know, I have I have beef with him though. Because I'm why? What could you possibly have beef with Jabuki about? I, he identifies as a short king, and he's like five nine. <laughs> Absolutely. Are you not. gatekeeping shortness? Yes, you are not a short. You need to be five seven or less to be a short king. I'm sorry. I think five seven is like medium height still. It's it's the tallest you can be and still be a short king. I th- I was gonna say like five 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 six. Nah, five six. You're five six is short. I don't know, man. You know, do you, I literally guess how I'm, tall I am. How tall am I? Are you five six? I'm five five. See, I don't know anyone shorter than me. I cannot tell how tall you are. People like tell me that they don't notice that I'm short these days. Like they, Mark, they like because they like BDE. T- they tell me that I don't have. They tell me that I don't have short guy energy. That's probably the best compliment you could absolutely have. I like. I take it as a compliment, but it's also kind of sad that like. That like one of the best things about me is that I'm not like the thing that I that I am. I mean, they're saying like it would be yeah. really easy for you to be an asshole, but you're not. Yeah, well, what you I think could be the, like I, the bagel man. I think what sh- yeah, short guy energy is like exuding insecurity and like tr- kind of like the thing where like you're insecure about something and so you assume everyone else hates you for it, so you jump the gun about it. Aha! Uh-huh. But yes. in a way that's like not charming at all that's you, uh, that, it, that could in no way ever be charming it's uh actually i take it back zach fox okay jabuki and drill garbage ape and then zach fox before he got banned from twitter
Welcome to We Read Theory, the podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. I'm Mark. I'm Alex. And today, we're going to be discussing France Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, which is a very fun title. At its core, Wretched is about decolonialism as a violent struggle and as a process that both enables and necessitates a change in the way colonized people see themselves. He begins with an extended discussion of the role of violence in the national struggle, but he does something rather striking with it. He doesn't, as an American leftist like myself might expect, attempt to morally justify the use of violence against settlers and colonial occupation. That violence is justified, can be taken for granted, which brings us to the realization that this work is not for us. Now, when I say us, I'm talking about Alex and myself. However, almost 90% of our listeners come from just five countries, the US, UK, Canada, Australia, and Germany. So chances are, if you're listening to this, Fanon isn't talking to you directly either. He's instead speaking only to colonized peoples around the world, and especially in Africa. Fanon is interested in how to use violence, who is likely to use violence, and what kind of response from the colonial master should be expected once violence is employed on a large scale. According to Fanon, the revolutionary class in colonized nations is one that considers the struggle for independence in purely violent terms. And this is not the urban proletariat, but instead the peasantry. I have so many questions already, but yeah. I feel like you're just going to say we're going to talk about them later. Well, let, let them rip. Let's see what we got. I mean, you said you said this um, this work isn't for us. Yeah. So I should let other people do the hard thing of like putting putting their lives and or reputations on the line by fighting the people fighting oppressors it's not that we shouldn't read it it's that it's not our ears he has in mind when he writes it oh the work of reading this book or the work of violently revolting well it's if you're trying to you know if you're an algerian and you and 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 you're under french colonial occupation and you want to free algeria like from colonialism are you going to go to the algerian people or are you going to go to some guys in brooklyn okay fair i think i think i get more of what he's talking it's really about yeah now. it's not it's not it's it's more just like you know how when you are like on on the internet and you you find yourself in a space on the internet that's been carved out for women and you just notice that the way they discuss things the things that can be taken for granted the things that have to be proven are different than in spaces that are generally um carved out for men especially when you talk about gender issues and how it's not that you can't read it or you can't do things with the knowledge you get from it but it's just that it's just a fact of the matter that when you read it you can tell it's not meant for you it's meant for someone else it's 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 written for with someone else in mind like how on reddit um they had to make a sub called actual lesbians because the original our lesbian sub was just a porn sub it's exactly like that alex <laughs> <laughs> so unfortunate um so yeah fanon speaks of union organizers and nationalist party members in the towns and the cities of the colonized nation and something he notes about them is that they tend to shy away from the use of violence 
of demanding independence, and they tend to settle for concessions from the mother country rather than fight for independence. And for this reason, he argues that urban organizers will never be the tip of the spear in this fight. And he follows a hypothetical party member who, through the advocacy and use of more extreme illegal methods, is forced to flee the town for the countryside. And what this party member finds is an unlimited supply of people out in the countryside who think the same as he does, and that they view the struggle for national independence as a violent one. And this is kind of interesting. It's nearly a complete reversal of what Marx says about who is or is not the revolutionary class. For Marx, it's the urban proletariat that'll lead the revolution because they're the most exploited, the ones who have nothing to lose but their chains. The lumpen proletariat, who are your criminals and your vagabonds, as well as your landless peasants, constitute a reactionary class that will stifle the revolution when it comes. You know, as opposed to um, Fanon, who basically says that the lumpen proletariat is your revolutionary class, those criminals in the outskirts of the city, the landless peasants. And what's the reason for this difference? Well, it's pretty simple. Fanon and Marx are applying the same dialectical framework to different material conditions. In a colonial situation, the urban laborers actually constitute a relatively privileged class. They get to retain some of their humanity in exchange for submitting to European cultural and economic standards. In contrast, the rural population is dehumanized completely. They are the ones with nothing to lose, and therefore the ones who will refuse to compromise and who will engage in violence with the understanding that the risks and consequences can be great. Violence is how the rural population regains their humanity, in the literal sense because they're directly fighting institutions that dehumanize them, but also in a more spiritual sense, because it's one of the only ways they have available to express agency on the world around them. I like that we defined the difference between urban uh, urban proletariat and lumpen proletariat, and that um, the difference in how people see these things, like in Fanon versus Marx, are mm-hmm. very, very defined, very situational, right? It's not... Um, it's not one framework that can be picked up and placed anywhere for any group of oppressed people. Yeah, yeah. And this is all the theory that I've read has been talked about on the podcast. So if there's something that I haven't talked about, I haven't read it. I'm sorry. But um, my understanding is is that Marx is pretty clear about how you can act. There's actually quite a bit of, of difference between different countries and like what, what systems are in place there. And so your revolutionary framework isn't going to be the same in every country. So I don't really see Fanon as much of a contradiction of Marx. I actually think people are a little bit uncharitable when they say that Marx is Eurocentric. I think that he is Eurocentric, but I don't think he's trying to apply European frameworks to the rest of the world. I think that he is intentionally narrow um, and and, and, and by his own words is not meant to be applied one-to-one to places outside of the actual areas where he's talking about your England's, your Germany's, stuff like that. Yeah, I think his overfitting, I guess you could say, with um, Eurocentric wealth distributions and societies um, makes sense because that's the only way you're really going to get um, any any sort of value out of it. And if it's if it's too broad, then it's not going to be applicable enough to people. So I think I, I agree with him doing that. I feel like it's fine. Yeah, I mean, it's what he knows. It's where he's from. Right. Uh, like, like for, if you have, let's see, like, uh, maybe like uh, an Asian tiger country like Hong Kong or Singapore, 
where there's an incredible um an, an incredible wealth gap i think a different um percentage or and or social class of the people are going to going to be um i guess like the spark of revolution versus a country where there's an actual middle class which is becoming increasingly harder to find but um nonetheless dude we should fucking read some like japanese and like south korean socialists. i was just thinking that what a hundred percent what the fuck i have so many interesting like directions i want to go in with this podcast um if anyone if anyone has a recommendation for um uh yeah specifically a japanese socialist in particular like a post like a post world war ii japanese socialist i would love i don't hate that at all yeah i'm I'm down yeah i was just reading i just finished up the um the showa graphic novels written by uh i don't want to get his word his name wrong i think it's shigeru mizuki um what's that about it's a it's a half by autobiographical and half just like historical graphic novel series on the showa period which is the period of the emperor that we in america call hirohito which was from the 1920s to the 1980s so it's a very long period and he basically lived through the whole thing and so it goes through his childhood and then he serves in world war ii in the pacific on on the japanese side barely survives as with everyone else who barely survived and comes back to a japan that's of course changed forever and you get kind of like a tangential view of the labor struggles and there's there's a lot of really interesting labor history that happens in like that post-war period especially in like the 1960s and such yeah i'm down let's do it so um the lumpen proletariat and particularly the rural peasants is the revolutionary class and one of the things that you find about them is that they're also tend to be more traditional uh than like urban the urban populations which is pretty normal across most countries and the role of tradition is also fundamentally different in colonized and colonizer nations in france for example the tendency for the rural population to cling to tradition is part of what made them reactionary tradition in this context is something that the ruling class is interested in preserving for their own legitimacy and this is the exact opposite of how tradition is dealt with in colonized nations when european nations colonized africa Great efforts were made to erase, sideline, and delegitimize native cultures as inferior and animalistic. And this in part served to justify colonialism morally to those who engaged in it, and also to instill a sense of inferiority in the colonized population itself. In this context, holding on to tradition is an act of defiance against entrenched power. I took a class, on uh, English class on diaspora. I'm sorry yeah. I keep interrupting. Is this just... Jewish diaspora? No, no. Unfortunately, it wasn't with um, the goat Randy Friedman. Okay. Um, but I did, I did learn a little bit about Jewish sociology from from him, which was which was really nice and helped me to understand um, a lot of things about like Jewish family values, which which was nice. But um, we were reading books about um, life on a reservation as a Native American. Yeah. And the idea. Um, that you're like this um, colonizer savior and you think of yourself as a good person when you're quote unquote civilizing these savage people and what <laughs> the idea of savagery is and how fucking gross that is just never occurred to me. And how, how these people thought like bringing Christianity and bringing um, 
I don't know, I guess, um, Christian and English values to to these nations was a good thing and like or that that's what they at least told themselves. Yeah, because there's there's an inherent dehumanization that is happening there because the the what you say, what you inevitably say about the cultures that you're replacing is that they're animalistic and that they're like uncivilized that they're uncivilized and and you're kind of acting like um hold on fanon has a great quote that i didn't actually put in the script but um oh uh on the quote on the unconscious plane colonialism therefore did not seek to be considered by the native as a gentle loving mother who protects her child from a hostile environment but rather as a mother who unceasingly restrains her fundamentally perverse offspring from managing to commit suicide and from giving free rein to its evil instincts. The colonial mother protects her child from itself, from its ego, and from its physiology, its biology, and its own unhappiness, which is its very existence. Oh, like, don't worry, we know what's best for you. Yeah, exactly. You you little, you, you mere child. So... Within the imperial cores of Europe and the United States, a prerequisite for a successful revolution is that the working class must develop class consciousness. And by this, I mean that workers must become broadly aware of the fact that society consists of a class of people that works and a class of people that reaps profit through ownership of the means of production. Class consciousness also implies that the relationship between these classes is one of exploitation of the workers by the owners, and that the workers can choose to subvert and replace these systems with enough organization, effort, sacrifice. As with his identification of a revolutionary class, Fanon is taking the Marxist framework and applying it to the different material conditions of the colony. Because colonialism involves the exploitation of a whole nation rather than a class, it's national consciousness that colonized people needs to develop. From the outset of the colonial period, the colonizer nation does two things. It reinforces a lot of traditional power structures like tribal chiefs and whatnot, and it especially exacerbates rivalries between existing cultural groups. At the same time, it erases to the greatest possible degree any connection between the colonized population and their culture. In this way, old power structures are made to serve the colonizer nation, and the colonized people is left without a society of their own to take part in developing, and instead must take part in the colonial one. The development of national consciousness defies both of these colonial aims. A general sense of unity and shared struggle between the whole colonized population subverts the ability for the colonizer to exploit old rivalries. At the same time, a recognition of cultural separation between the native population and the colonizer nation creates the space for a national identity that's totally independent from colonialism to form which is necessary prior to the formation of an actual independent nation. This is kind of where we have to reiterate that this book is not for us, those of us living in the imperial cores. Personally, I hear the words national consciousness or national struggle, and I shudder. In the States, the kind of people who would use... Yeah, I'm getting I'm getting a, uh, a nod from you. Yeah, I feel, I feel you, man. When you in said national States, struggle, I was like, oof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But in the States, the kind of people who would use these words, or at least the white people who would use these words, are basically all fascists. And my instinct is to criticize Fanon in the same way I would criticize them. For a white working class American, national consciousness is a false consciousness. They're misunderstanding the nature of what's oppressing them, and therefore they come up with really dumb ideas about how to fix it, like kicking out black and brown people. 
the colonized person is simply engaging in objective materialist analysis when they develop a national consciousness, because their oppression is occurring on a national axis. So I understand where the need for national consciousness and national identity is coming from in this colonial context. However, Fanon is himself sensitive to the pitfalls of national consciousness, so much so to the point that he named a full section of his book after them. And these pitfalls are fundamentally the same ones that that working-class American that I just brought up a second ago falls into. Principle among them is that the whole purpose of the national struggle becomes the replacement of the foreign European bourgeoisie with a native one. There are some obvious reasons why this is bad from a socialist perspective. A nation would likely keep on as it had been under colonialism, with the most productive sections of the country given lavish treatment, much of the country being ignored, and most of the population seeing their conditions stay the same or even get worse. There's another problem, though, that's particular to the colonial situation. This is that the native bourgeoisie is not really a bourgeoisie at all. The native bourgeoisie is something that was created by the European bourgeoisie to oversee the extraction of wealth out of the country and into the hands of European capitalists. As a result of playing that role throughout the entire colonial period, the native bourgeoisie lacks the culture, and more importantly, the capital, to assume the role of true bourgeoisie after independence is gained. According to Fanon, they're a class of middle managers. Rule by this rump bourgeoisie post-independence is just opening the door for the return of the Europeans after a short time, now in neocolonial form. Because they can't do it themselves. They don't have the fucking money. And so you, they, they end up having to bring back European investors to kind of take ownership of large parts of the country just to keep it running. Bring in that foreign VC. Yeah, literally. I mean, that's, that's what neocolonialism is, really. Another major pitfall of national consciousness is that it encourages the equivocation of involvement by European capitalists in the national economy with that of other African workers. In this way, we can see newly independent nations adopting the same false consciousness that anti-immigrant Americans do, and for this reason, a nation built wholly on national consciousness is never far from becoming a fascist one. National consciousness can only motivate the beginning of a struggle for independence. In time, that national consciousness has to give way to political and social consciousness. For Fanon, this is the role of the intellectuals and the nationalist parties. The peasantry, as the revolutionary class, forms the tip of the spear because they are the readiest to use violence to meet their goals. This doesn't mean that the intellectuals and parties are useless, though. Their political education is vital to the long-term success of the new nation. We've already laid out why the native bourgeoisie can't be left to run the country on their own terms, and they principally control the intermediate and they principally control the intermediary trade sectors of the economy. These sectors have to be nationalized to take them out of the hands of the bourgeoisie, but that doesn't imply that they should instead be controlled by a centralized government. Quote, Nationalizing the intermediary sector means organizing wholesale and retail cooperatives on a democratic basis. It also means decentralizing these cooperatives by getting the mass of the people interested in the ordering of public affairs. You will not be able to do this unless you give the people some political education, unquote. So, so that's how rereading theory is literally, literally praxis, no matter who you are. Reading theory and, and, and educating the working class and raising their political consciousness? Absolutely. And not only that, but applying it, because I guess he was saying, like, whether it's whether it's um, education or uh, religion or 
just any sort of national consciousness movement doesn't really matter if you're not applying it at all, which is obvious, but I think an important, important distinction. Like you can get right up to the edge of the cliff, but if you don't jump, then nothing really matters. Yeah. You haven't built, you haven't built a successful nation because you fucking shot all the soldiers at like the checkpoint and like got them to leave the country. Like you need to actually have an idea of where you're going with the whole process and you need to be aware of where the problems actually come from in order to solve them. Which sounds like I'm talking down to like colonize people, but I swear to God, I'm just paraphrasing Fanon. Although um, Fanon was himself one of these intellectuals. He was a psychiatrist by trade. So he's not really of like that peasantry that he's talking about as a revolutionary class, which is kind of similar to where Marx was at in relation to the working classes of Germany and England. But the role of urban intellectuals is not to swoop in and steal the independence that the peasants have won. The point is to help them to prevent it from being taken. The nationalist parties, which formed much of the basis of organized urban resistance to colonialism, should remain as separated from the government as possible once independence is actually gained. Its officials should, quote, avoid the capital like a plague, unquote. The purpose of this is to maintain the party as a means of popular resistance to the government during the period of national independence. If this isn't done, the party just becomes another tool of the government and only serves to slow or stop the evolution of national consciousness into political consciousness and increases the likelihood that the new nation will take on a fascist character. And and this is so, I guess, officials cannot be corrupted in any way. Yeah, I guess it's, who polices... It's kind of- who watches the watchers? I it's guess, kind of anarchist a little bit where it's just like he's talking about how everything needs to be decentralized. He like radical decentralization is really, really um, big for how he's talking about organizing the new economy and how to actually go about nationalizing industries. He's talking about forming cooperatives, having them formed on a democratic basis, getting as many people involved with them as possible so that the power is distributed as much as possible it is kind of anarchist in that way which is fine by me personally kind of based anarchist Um, it's so much easier to be an anarchist than a communist because you basically get to disavow all of like the shitty things that anyone's ever done in the name of leftism all right all right we should we should get back to it so fanon dwells on national culture as a concept for quite a while and so We will too. I think the most important thing for readers to understand is the distinction between culture and tradition or custom. It's tempting to put all these under one umbrella because we generally think of traditions and customs as being at the center of a nation's culture. The distinction, however, is dynamism. Traditions and customs are things, they're snapshots of the culture at a time, preserved in formaldehyde. When we defer to tradition, we assume that someone who came before us had access to a truth that we can't improve on or even meet in the present day. For this reason, it's an anti-dialectical and therefore inherently reactionary concept. Culture, as Fanon employs it, is is a dialectical concept. It's a process through which a society can change and develop. And when a nation possesses a national culture, it doesn't just mean that they're in touch with their history. It means that they view themselves as part of the same progression in which that history is included. It's clear how this view of the self is unacceptable to the colonizing power, which is why one of the first steps to colonization is the destruction of the native culture. 
This leaves the native population with two choices. Either you accept European culture as a replacement, or you retreat to the past and to custom without any of the dynamism of cultural development. The people who exemplify the former option are those native intellectuals. These are the people who have in large part abandoned their own culture to take part in the culture of the colonizer. The beginnings of national consciousness in this group of people comes in the form of an interest in and an identification with their own native customs and history. Through this research of the past, the intellectual comes to understand that culture can't exist while it's not being constantly updated and changed, and because they have the ability to do so, they begin to produce cultural work of their own, this time for a native rather than European audience. This forms the basis of the spreading of national consciousness and of the elevation of that consciousness to political and social consciousness. The new culture often involves the mixing of old custom with new ideas to create wholly new cultural forms. From Fanon, at length, quote, The colonialist specialists do not recognize these new forms and rush to the help of the traditions of the indigenous society. It's the colonialists who become the defenders of the native style. We remember perfectly, and the example took on a certain measure of importance since the real nature of colonialism was not involved. The reactions of the white jazz specialists when after the Second World War, new styles such as the bebop took definite shape. The fact is that, in their eyes, jazz should only be the despairing, broken-down nostalgia of an old negro who's trapped between the five glasses of whiskey, the curse of his race, and the racial hatred of the white man. As soon as the negro comes to an understanding of himself, and understands the rest of the world differently, when he gives birth to hope and forces back the racist universe, it's clear that his trumpet sounds more clearly and his voice less hoarsely." Unquote. Once the population has begun to produce culture that is new and that's self-referential, the days of colonialism are officially numbered. So tradition might be um, the, uh, the Confederate flag as part of state flags and culture might be understanding its significance, but knowing it doesn't belong in state symbols. Yeah, yeah. Tradition is a statue of Lee. Culture is the graffiti people are putting on it right now. That was a good fucking quote. I, I enjoyed that thoroughly. I have no notes. <laughs> Fanon concludes everything with a simple request that newly independent African nations do not attempt to copy Europe in their quest for prosperity. While Europe has created quite a bit of prosperity for itself, it's dragged much of the rest of the world into misery and decline in return. When the colonized people of the world rise up, there's no one else left to exploit. Fanon isn't calling into question the idea that African nations should pursue their own prosperity, but, quote, it's simply a very concrete question of not dragging men towards mutilation, of not imposing upon the brain rhythms which very quickly obliterate and wreck it. The pretext of catching up must not be used to push man around, to tear him away from himself or from his privacy, to break and kill him." Unquote. In short, Fanon is urging against African nations copying Europe's production fetish, a fetish I encourage Europeans and Americans to likewise abandon. So what do we learn? We learn that applying dialectical materialism to colonized nations yields different results from industrialized European ones because the material conditions are different. We learn that an oppressed people must develop consciousness of the axis along which they experience their oppression 
class for the urban proletariat of Europe, nation for the peasants of Africa. And finally, we learned that an identity which exists only in reference to the past is not an identity at all. And that's right where the bourgeoisie wants you. So always look to the future. See yourself not as part of a culture that's already defined, but as someone with the power to define culture yourself. When the chains in your mind are broken, only the ones on your body remain. And that's a brilliant callback to our last episode, is it not? Or was that some new thought wholly unrelated? Well, I it's think it totally relates. unintentional, but um, we're talking about similar ideas, so it makes sense. I feel like we, uh, I was uh, channeling my leftist Pete Buttigieg for that last bit. Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, that... Okay, I think I think you actually had a coherent theme, so it was wholly unlike Pete Buttigieg. Okay, <laughs> I do. and there's actual substance behind what you were saying. There is. So I know for a fact that there's one listener out there, at least one listener, who has definitely read this book twice or more. So you have probably noticed and observed that we skipped a complete section of the book that has to do with how colonialism interacts with the mental health of people who have to suffer it um it was that section was just a little bit out of place with the rest of the text and fanon even says that he says like i didn't know how to fit this in but we want to talk about it and he's a psychiatrist by trade so i'm sure he is so he has very interesting uh views on colonialism and mental health but i thought it would be better to discuss all of that maybe in a separate episode where we go over some leftist um, kind of perspectives on mental health and how to politicize it, how we talk about it and everything like that. So I just thought that would be better in an episode that is specific to that topic. A little bonus? Um, probably probably a full episode. We could yeah. go through a few things. Because we've talked about Mark Fisher. We've talked about Michel Foucault. We've talked about Frantz Fanon. All these people are really interested in mental health. And also, I would love to um, listen to some indigenous uh, writers talk about um, their understanding as mental health in kind of contrast to that settler bourgeois like hyper medicalization of 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 um, mental health that we kind of live under today where like the only cause of mental health problems is is like this medical chemical imbalance and the idea of politicizing them at all is kind of frowned upon I like that a lot. I like that a lot. And maybe some of the, um, as a result of colonial rule, some of the mental afflictions they might specifically be subjected to. Because yeah. I think like, while, while we're doing, while we're doing quick shout outs, shout out to the, um, the, uh, the Wiccan community on Twitter, um, for putting, for putting us up. We got like, I know we're going to have to do like Caliban and the witch to, to sate them at some point. <laughs> well, yeah, no, no, seriously. Um, if you're a witch gotta, and you like, like our show and you haven't listened to our episode on Bookchin, you probably should. I think you'd like it. Yeah, we need to be reached out to because Anchor doesn't give us um, data on um, who's Wiccan and who's not. So, <laughs> yeah, we, we need to be told directly, unfortunately. Continuing with the shout outs trend also, um, uh, we've gotten some compliments on our logo um, that we have, like the, the blue and orange one. Um the artist is a friend of mine who produces great music. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Hunjia, H-U-N-J-I-Y-A. 
Um, she's released a bunch of new stuff recently, and I personally really enjoyed it. Um, also, releasing music under Indigo World on Instagram, and you can find her on Spotify and all those other nice things. But um, I think that's all we have for you guys today. Um, love you guys, and make sure if- you shout out the Twitter as well. Oh fuck. Yeah, every uh, it's the one it's the one consistent thing I okay. do. We're gonna write it out. We're gonna write out the whole outro at some point. Every single time. Right. Um please, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you feel so inclined to uh watch me shit post when I should be working, you can follow us uh at we read theory pod uh on twitter.com. And yeah, that's about it. Uh, love you guys. And if I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.